Psalms 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So my question for you this morning is, do you like to wait? Are you good at waiting? Uh, when I was a student missionary, if you sent something priority, now if you didn't send it priority, it may never get there, but if you sent it priority, you could send a package, and Ponape is way out there in the middle of the Pacific. It's a lo- really long uh, plane ride to get there. I think it says there on the screen, one day and nine hours. That's just in the plane. Uh, and so for a package to get there, it takes about 29, 30, 35 days. And if it takes an extra 15 or 20, well, you know, that's just how it goes. And maybe you won't get there for six months. And so you just wait. And you put in the package something accordingly, because if it's something you want to get there in a hurry, well, it's just not going to get there. Now, for most things that you used to order, it would say you had to wait seven to eight, biz- sorry, seven to ten business days, Right? And if you wanted it faster than that, you had to upgrade. And if you were going to upgrade, you were going to pay considerably more. And I don't know about you, but that's something else I don't like, is I don't like to pay for shipping. And so you're left waiting for seven to ten days. Maybe some of you have seen this. Laundry, wash one hour, dry one hour, fold seven to ten business days. Does that (laughs) hold true in your house by any chance? But then Amazon came along and came up with this idea of two-day delivery. Are we spoiled with that? I remember for a long time, uh, my mother-in-law, well, let's just order it from Amazon. It'll be here in two days. I don't think it will be here in two days. No, it will be here in two days. But somehow that's not fast enough either. Now we have one-day delivery, even same-day delivery. You've probably seen those little videos threatening for drones to bring not only the package that you've asked for, but for a hot coffee, they say, is coming in the future that will just drop down and the drone stays way up in the sky so you don't hear it and sends us a line down, and there's your little package. Still warm. I can't imagine. Now, I don't drink coffee, so that's not a thing for me, but same-day delivery. That's kind of cool and slash kind of creepy. You push the button, and then you go to the front door, and then there's this thing in just a few hours. You need that ingredient for whatever you're cooking. And we are addicted, if you will, to fast. We don't like to wait. The fast food industry was built around this very premise. But it's so much more than that now. We have on-demand books, on-demand music, on-demand entertainment. It's here. We want it now, just a few clicks away. I don't know about you, but I will not get on I-26 before I check (laughs) my trusty little app. But I have to tell you, my app let me down this week. (laughs) Dentist appointment at Dr. Abbott's. Went and got Marianne out of school early. We were on our way. We were going to be there. Our ETA, we were golden. We were going to be on time. And then right around uh, the Biltmore Park, everything just slows way down. I'm looking on my little app. No, it says everything's green. What's going on? I still don't know what was going on, except there were two construction trucks there blocking both lanes with big signs saying, do not pass. And they were blinking and going about two miles an hour. Two miles an hour, two miles an hour. I'm watching my ETA go up and up and up. 
I call. We're stuck in traffic here on I-26. Well, if you can't get here by 2.15, we're going to have to reschedule. No! <laughs> Thankfully, for whatever reason, they got the go-ahead, and these trucks started to move just in time, and we got there at 2.13, didn't we, Marianne? Don't our teeth look good? <laughs> There's something about waiting that's hard to do. And perhaps... I imagine all of us here at some point in time have rerouted, even though it may be further and maybe even take longer, but the idea of sitting and waiting is so much harder than actually moving. Can you relate to that? At least we're going somewhere. At least we're doing something. At least we're on the way. But to wait. And the hardest part about waiting is when you don't know how long the wait will be. I hate to wait. In fact, my students in Pohnpei, in their broken English, they would just say, I hate wait. That's how they would say it. I hate wait. How about you? Do you hate to wait? We're continuing our, our series on David, a man after God's own heart, and that's the title of our, of our sermon today, I hate to wait. That's a little bit what it feels like to me, to wait. And so this morning, we're going to look at another chapter in David's life where he had to hurry up and Wait. And so a little review in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Remember, David is on the run. He seems to have lost his connection with God. His trust in God to provide for him is waning, and in desperation, he lies to the priest. A mistake that costs the murder of all of the priests, but one that gets away. This deed filled Israel with all horror. It was the king whom they had chosen who had committed this outrage. The ark was with them, but the priests of whom they had inquired were slain with the sword. What would come next? So David lies to the priest. He lies essentially to his pastor, asks for a weapon, ends up hiding behind the sword of Goliath, ironically the very sword that did not deliver Goliath. Yet this is where David is placing his trust. You remember David's word. You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. But now, in desperation, he clings to the sword of Goliath. He goes to Gath, to the enemy, seeking refuge. They recognize him. And so he pretends he's a madman, drooling, saying all kinds of things in hopes to, and in fact he does, escape. In chapter 22, David ends up in the cave of Adullam. And last time we talked about how caves, you need to know, are where God does some of his best work. Maybe that was a few times ago. Because in those dark experiences that it drives us to our knees, forces us to reevaluate, look to God in search for answers. And it's there in the cave that his family comes to visit him. And it describes how he's surrounded by this ragtag group of re rebels, all described as either in distress, in debt, or discontented. And it seems to be here that David sees his overwhelming need of God. It seems to be here in this cave that David humbles himself. I imagine God whispering to David, see what a mess you've made of things. Remember how I delivered you from the lion and the bear and the giant. David, where's your faith? 
And it's in this cave experience, and we looked at this before, Psalm 34, 4. He wrote this psalm while in the cave. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7 and 8, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust, not in a sword, but in God, in him. And so David finally makes those connections again. His relationship with God, I like to think, is restored again. His trust is no longer in the arm of flesh, but it's in the arm and hand of God. Patriarchs and Prophets 657 says this, Every failure, how many? Anybody here ever had a failure? Every failure on the part of the children of God is due to their lack of faith. When shadows encompass the soul, when we want light and guidance, we must look up. There is light beyond the darkness. Important to remember. And so in this section, I hope you brought your Bibles. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Not one that we typically spend a lot of time on, but I think there's some good lessons for us here in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Beginning verse 1, chapter 23, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines, the enemy, are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Just like an enemy, waiting until you harvest and bring everything into the barns, and now they're going to attack. Now they're going to plunder. And so the idea comes. They're being plundered. They're being attacked Should we go help? Should we be of service to them? I mean, if we do so, we'll put ourselves at considerable risk. We're already on the hunt ourselves. And if we do this, they'll know exactly where we are. Not to mention we could get caught up in the crosshairs. Is this something we want to involve ourselves in? But notice what David does in verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. Underline that. He doesn't say, let's go. We've got this. I know what to do. He doesn't say, let's hunker down. It's a bad idea. It says, therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? He's praying for guidance. Lord, what should I do? Seems rather simple. Elementary but a, skip, a step or two quick to skip, isn't it? And how come, I wonder? Because we're minute men. We're minute women. We've got to act. We've got to act now. We know what to do. We have instincts. And so we move forward. If we ask the Lord, we have to wait. That takes time. How long before God may answer? I'm not sure. But David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to David, second part of verse 2, Go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But verse 3, we read, But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And so David inquired of the Lord once again. It might seem like a small thing, but I think it's a significant change from the behavior we have seen before. 
David doesn't run off on his own. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Before, there was this downward slide from faith to fear, and it bottomed out in the cave of Adullam. And now, once again, David is willing to wait for the Lord's leading. Don't miss that. Willing to wait for the divine empowerment. Fear is no longer overriding his passion. Now he has a renewed trust in God, as well as a passionate concern for endangered people, his people, in Keilah. Further, I think David has learned the important link between courage and waiting. In fact, David would later write songs about this. I'll put some on the screen. Psalm 27, verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. They go together. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The reality is it's a lot easier to lie down and die, to turn to friends, flee for your life, or even feign madness than it is to wait. And it's easier said than done. Waiting can be one of the hardest things to do. Somebody wants lunch right now, yet you're waiting because you're not doing anything when you wait. There's a problem, a challenge, a situation, and my instincts tell me to do something, anything. But to wait is frustrating and can even seem cowardly. Aren't you going to act? Aren't you going to respond? What are you going to do? And let's face it, when the cloud moves, we feel like God is answering our prayers because he's done this remarkable thing to show his will and his plan. But when the cloud doesn't move, and day after day after day, it just Stay still. Waiting can cause us to think that God perhaps didn't hear, that he's not with us. Yes, doing something is always easier than waiting. And there is a link, as this verse reminds us, between waiting and courage. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Be of good courage. Be patient. Wait. So yes, there's a link between waiting and courage, but there's also a link between waiting and hope. Let me put another verse on the screen, Psalm 39, verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. When we wait, we are placing our hope in God. Ultimately, the waiting is on God, who is our hope. And when we wait on God, he has a way of stilling the soul. Another verse, Psalm 62, verse 5, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. Friends, those that wait on the Lord with all their heart, wait sometimes in silence, sometimes for long periods of time. It's difficult, but if I love God, in courage I will wait. In silence I will wait, and my soul will be okay, because my hope is in Him. So David gets the word to go. And to summarize quickly, they fight the Philistines. God gives them victory in Keilah. But sure enough, Saul finds out David is there. And so again, David seeks the Lord for divine counsel. Lord, what should I do now? And we find it in verse 10. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. And here's the question, will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? 
Will they have my back? Will they stand for me? Will they hide me? Or will they just simply give me up? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Oh, Lord, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. Would these people help protect David? Who had literally risked life and limb to save them? No, the answer comes back, they won't. Sometimes the very people you help will betray you. I don't know, maybe this city had Nob in mind when they considered their options. Maybe it was all about self-preservation. But unfortunately, human nature can be fickle. It can be self-serving. It can be ungrateful. But take note again, David is not seen taking matters into his own hands. He waits on the Lord. He asks the Lord for direction. And in receiving the answer... David quietly packs his bags and departs to where? Where is a safe place? Where should they go? Are they forever to be on the run? Lord! Verse 14, we read, And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Notice David didn't escape from Saul because he was faster or more clever. We tend to think that. We like heroes that win. But friends, David is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. David evaded the king because the Lord intervened. And so we keep reading verse 15. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. You shall be next. I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his house. Here we have a loyal friend that comes to encourage, to pray with David. But right after that, it's the Ziphites that will be next to betray David. They tell Saul exactly where David is. And again, David is on the run. I mean, this would get old, would it not? I've been traveling. I've been going from here to there. I don't know where my head's going to be tomorrow night or the next night. How long will we be here before we move on? And so this drama takes us hill by hill and cliff by cliff, crag by crag, rock by rock, over the wilderness terrain of Maon until the king finally corners his prey. And we read in verse 24, So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. Let me pause this right there. When David sees Saul and his army coming, he is on a cone-shaped rock, a citadel atop a hill, and in battle, high ground is always the advantage. 
But notice in verse 25, it says, Therefore David went down to the rock, or the two could really be also translated from the rock, which I believe is a better translation. So David is on high ground. He sees Saul coming. He could say, all right, guys, we're going to stand on this position of advantage, and we are going to take them down. But what does David do? He comes down off the rock. Why would David do this? He's on the run. He's being cornered. If there's any time he's under press, pressure or stress to react, to respond, to defend himself with Goliath's sword, it very well could be right now. In fact, David is a mighty warrior. He would win, wouldn't he? After all, he's Israel's greatest military leader. They have the physical high ground in the battlefield of their choosing. But again, David chooses not to fight. He's going to wait on the Lord. And in verse 26, the chase gets to a fevered pitch. It says, then Saul went on one side of the mountain. Then David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul. For Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. The chase is coming to a fevered pitch. They're encircling. They're surrounding. They're closing in. All seems lost for David. Saul almost has him in his grasp. And our imagination instinctively jumps ahead to the moment the king is sure to seize David. And we wait. But just at the critical moment, Saul gets word that the Philistines have launched a massive invasion. We read about it in verse 27, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Saul sought him every day, but God didn't deliver him into his hand. Here in this chapter, David has learned to wait on the Lord. And God provides for his deliverance again and again and again. In God's way and in God's time. Are you waiting this morning? What are you waiting for? Test results? A job that you can't seem to find? Waiting for some other health situation, a family member, a relationship? Is this ever going to change? Is something going to budge? How long will I wait? Maybe like David, you are feeling like your, your very life is at stake. Lord, where are you? Remember Psalm 27, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He has you in mind. Remember Psalm 39. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Remember Psalm 62. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. Again, Samuel 23 is not a chapter we often focus on. In fact, it's one we often skip over. But it's in this chapter that we see that David has learned how to wait on the Lord once again. 
And in this micro story, David waits a short time before receiving an answer. I get it. But in the larger story, David has been and will wait a very long time. It is thought that David was anointed to be king around 15 years old, give or take. The Bible tells us he becomes king at 30 years old. That's a 15-year wait. 15 years of uncertainty, 15 years of, of running. How long, O oh Lord? And you thought you'd been waiting a long time because you hate to wait. Last time he was taking matters in his own hands, but in this chapter, David learned to courageously wait for his hope was in the Lord. But he's not the only one in the Bible that waits. Maybe you can remember others. Noah waited 120 years for the flood. Finally, he goes inside and he waits for another week after being sealed in the ark before the first raindrop falls. Abraham waited 25 years for the promise of a son. Joseph waited 22 years before his prophetic promise was fulfilled. And during that time, he's sold into slavery, accused of rape, spent time in prison. That's a long time to wait. Moses waited 40 years in Egypt, got impatient, so he slays the Egyptian. As a result, he waits another 40 years in the desert. Finally, God calls him and says, it's time. 80-year-old man, now it's time. And so he does all the things that follow and then ends up in a desert wandering for another 40 years, waiting to enter the promised land. Job suffered greatly as he waited on God. Many months, maybe years, we don't fully know. David, as I mentioned, waited 15 years between being anointed and being king. How about Hannah? Waited and prayed for a child for years. We don't know how long. The Bible just says year after year. But the Midrash is a commentary of the scriptures that dates back to the second century. According to that, whether it's true or not, I can't verify, but they say 19 years Hannah waited. It's a long time. And in fact, Rachel and Samson's motherless, uh, nameless mother and Elizabeth are three others that were all barren, and after much waiting, God finally answered their prayer for a child. And it's easy to look back and say, praise the Lord, but in the midst of waiting, in year number 18, year number 19, and you're still waiting, Paul waited three years in a desert of Arabia before God sent him to preach. That too is a long time. Jesus waited 30 years before he began his ministry. No, there are plenty others that waited in Scripture. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 194, because we might be saying, how long? How long are we to wait? And when will Jesus come? And how long are we going to be here on this earth before Jesus rescues us from all of this pain and heartache? Well, let me tell you something. You only have to wait a lifetime. That's the longest you and I will ever have to wait. God has been waiting for over 6,000 years throughout this whole great controversy, longing to come back. The whole Bible's replete with promises. I'm coming again soon. He wants to come. Every bad situation, every murder, every heartache, every pain, everything that's happening on this planet, God knows his heart feels it and how he survives that, I do not know. I would crumble under this, yet somehow we say, but I'm still waiting. How long has God been waiting? And why is he waiting? 
This answers that question. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. The long night of gloom is trying, but the morning is deferred in mercy because if the master should come, so many would be found unready. Is that you? Is that me? God's unwillingness to have his people perish has been the reason for so long delay. And so out of his mercy, God waits. Sounds a lot like 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why God waits. Because he is patiently waiting, giving every opportunity for his children to repent and trust fully in him. And so in the meantime, we wait. And it's true, it's not easy to wait. It takes courage to wait. And at the close of time, we know that we too will be surrounded on every side. We too will be encircled. We will be flanked. The enemies will be against us. And we'll cry out wondering, where is our deliverance? Where is the God that, we, that promised that he would come? Where is he? And we'll be looking for that same rock of escape that Daniel 2 talks about, a rock that's cut out with not human hands. But that rock of escape will come again at that final moment, at the crisis hour, to rescue us from sheer and utter destruction. Psalms 25, verse 5 says, For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Is anyone here overwhelmed this morning? Are you troubled this morning? Are you running from something this morning? Are you fearful? Is your life filled with uncertainty? If so, let me encourage you to be of good courage and wait on the Lord. If we are in his hands, nothing can pluck us out. So keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith and my faith. Keep waiting on him, and he will provide for you at just the critical moment.